Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today on Mike's Search for Meaning is Matthew Helt. Matthew Helt is a growth and development coach for startup founders and CEOs under his coaching practice called Prari Sattva, based in Omaha, Nebraska. Prior to starting his business in 2020, Matthew spent a little over six years with Techstars as the global director of Startup Week, which is a week-long event to catalyze and celebrate startup communities, and then joined the ecosystem development team where he served as the senior implementation consultant, working with cities all around the world to help them grow their entrepreneurial ecosystems. As a former startup founder, he's intimately aware of the stress and anxiety that comes with business ownership. It's for this reason that he created his own coaching practice to help entrepreneurs navigate the highs and lows of business ownership and ultimately come home to themselves to fully understand who they are as human beings. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. This episode, the organization is called Mental Health First Aid. In the conversation, we talk about Mental Health First Aid, and I don't believe it's an organization in this case that you can donate to, but I highly recommend checking it out and potentially taking a course in it or getting certified yourself to become an instructor. I am certainly interested after this conversation in becoming an instructor, and it's so important to be able to navigate challenging conversations when someone is not okay, because frankly, all of us at various points in our life are not going to be okay. That is probably the primary, I don't want to put words into Matthew's mouth, but it's probably one of the primary reasons that he got into this work in the first place. Matthew had his own set of mental health challenges, and he struggled with anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and panic attacks from a very young age, relatively for professional life. So he really had no choice but to make mindfulness practices and to take interest in mental health first aid. We also speak about, Matthew and I share a quality where, well, we share several qualities. We share shyness, introversion, and sensitivity. And we talk about what it means to be a human and a professional who has all of these characteristics and what it means to create your own roadmap, to have lots of space in your day and not to fill your calendar just because that's what other people might dictate you should be doing. We talk a little bit about when to challenge yourself out of your comfort zone and when to be in your comfort zone, because there's a lot of talk in the personal development space about pushing your comfort zone and, and leaping out of your comfort zone. But especially for folks like Matthew and I, we need lots of time to recharge. And it's actually really important for integration and growth that we spend lots of time in our comfort zone. So we kind of talk about 
that duality and how to balance both of those things. It's another popular topic in general in coaching is how to manage polarities, things that seem opposite, but that are really supportive of each other. And lastly, I'll say before I let Matthew do the rest of the talking here, he has a story about who his Leon is. And I want you to really tune into that story because it really moved me. I won't say anything more about it for now. With all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Matt has for us today. Matt, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a, a little bit. And I start all of my interviews the same way. I would love to know what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. Ooh, boy, I love that question. So I grew up, I'm very much a Gen Xer, grew up in the age of latchkey kids, both parents working. And so our dinner table, I would say, was in the kitchen. And usually, yeah, mom would make dinner, make it quickly. She was a working mother. And nine or 99% of the time, she was the one in charge of making dinner. I had a stepfather as well. Uh, so usually it was just the three of us. Sometimes my stepfather would be there, hamburger helper, that comes to mind. My mom would probably freak out if she's like, oh, you're talking about Hamburger Helper. But, you know, loved Hamburger Helper as a kid. Me and my brother, my brother who is a little more than two and a half years younger than me. So he and I just devouring food because we were very, you know, we'd play and play and play. We were always hungry. I don't know how my mom kept up with the the grocery bills at all. <laughs> and, you know, typically it was... uh it was pretty calm. I don't think there was much discussion. Mom might ask, how was your day? How mm -hmm. was school? But uh, we always had a TV on too. Mm. Uh, and this is back when we still had, <laughs> makes me sound so old. We had a little black and white TV uh -huh. in the kitchen. Usually the news was on and we just listened to the news and yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I would love to know, and I've heard you speak to this before, but I know that you were happy-go-lucky as a kid, and then there was a shift where you started to maybe retreat more into your shell. And I, I would love to know what you were like as as a boy, and how how did you experience the world, and and what did you want to be, and and all that fun stuff when you were little. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, as a child, I was very inquisitive, deep curiosity, loved to learn, and whatever I could get my hands on to learn. Read a lot of books. But that also made me, I guess, kind of a target. I was the nerd in school, always had my hand up for, you know, to answer questions. And I was a people pleaser, wanted to please my parents. I wanted to please my teachers, anyone who I thought of as an authority figure. You know, I wanted, I wanted to please them. Uh, so there was some, uh, some validation seeking there. And, you, you know, you spoke of there was a period of I was a very happy child but then things changed and that happened with my parents' divorce. Mm -hmm. So that happened in 1980, which I believe this is still true, but statistically the highest divorce rate ever in the United States happened in 1980. Wow. A lot of baby boomers getting, getting divorced. My parents were part of that wave. My dad ended up moving to Oregon, Pendleton, Oregon. And I grew up in Sioux City, Iowa. So I'm currently in Omaha, Nebraska, <clears throat> excuse me. 
and Sioux City is 90 miles directly north of Omaha. And so when they got divorced, that's when my mom noticed that there was a shift in me. I myself remember being more afraid once my dad left, even though the the home situation was not good. Uh, there were a lot of good reasons that they got divorced. But I think that there was that framework when there was when it was fractured, there was more fear, more anxiety. You know, I talk about this a lot that when I was a kid, I was I was kind of framed as a shy kid. Mm-hmm. Well, it, they didn't have I mean, they probably knew you know, anxiety, but often it wasn't diagnosed in kids. And so that traumatic event of my dad leaving, I think just opened up that world of anxiety. So yeah, I was shy, but it was driven by something. There were internal feelings there. And so those feelings followed me all through, all through school, into middle school, into high school. For the most part, I was a quiet kid, wasn't the most athletic. In fact, I was pretty unathletic until probably puberty, you know, really didn't know how to control my body, muscle movements. Uh, I was the worst basketball player, the worst at soccer, Uh, but I kept trying. And then once I started to kind of grow and develop, then those things became a little bit more easy for me. So I did play basketball in middle school. When I got to high school, that changed. I focused on soccer. Band music was was a big part of my childhood. My stepfather was a professional musician. He was a drummer. And so he played gigs every single weekend while I was growing up. Didn't go to a lot of his gigs because they were at bars and you know it wasn't appropriate for kids to be there. But our house was just infused with music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had tons, dozens and dozens of albums, cassette tapes. And then when CDs came out, we were my... Uh, stepfather was kind of on the cutting edge, had one of the first CD players in the neighborhood. And so I really gravitated towards music. I played a lot of different instruments, trumpet, guitar, bass guitar. Yeah. So that that was a big piece of it. I would say the height of my anxiety though was middle school. Adolescence was, was a big, a a bit challenging for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to get into what that looked like and we'll talk plenty about mental health and in middle school and beyond. And <clears throat> one of the things I'm struck by actually right now, because I, I can really relate to this when I was younger, and, and in some ways, it's still true today, that I was a people pleaser as well. And I was very much craving the approval of the authority figures in my life. And I would love to hear just what that looked like. Was it was it a demand for good grades? Was there a certain way that you were expected to be? Part of, part of the reason I'm asking this is because I know that this type of pressure can have a, a really detrimental effect on mental health, and it can really affect the way that we show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of expectations, there are, I would say my mom didn't have expectations. A lot of this was self-derived. I wanted to be a good student it was really important for me. And I think it was just that natural curiosity. Also the family, you know, outside of just the nuclear family, my grandfather was a doctor. Uh, He was a practicing medical doctor. And, and with that came some, for him anyway, some kind of like local celebrity status. Everyone knew Dr. Helt. There were so many times when it was like, oh, are you related to Dr. Helt? Yes. You know, oh, he, you know, he delivered me or he, you know, there was, he he was very, very well known. 
And so for for me growing up, he was a big role model. I wanted to be like grandpa. And I even had some aspirations of becoming a medical doctor. There was probably a little, I, I sensed a little bit of pressure because it felt like the family was looking for the next doctor in the family. None of my, none of his children, so my dad or my aunts and uncles, none of them became a doctor. And it was, it just, I don't know if it was ever explicitly said, but there was this sense that who's going to be the next doctor. And now that I'm talking about that, I do remember my grandmother saying, are you going to be the next Dr. Help? Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, so it kind of felt like they were looking for that. Even so far as saying your hands are exactly like grandpa's. You have <laughs> hands of a surgeon. And so, yeah, but I don't, I didn't, I didn't perform because of that. I performed because I liked the response I got from doing good. When I got an A on a paper, if, you know, the, we had the, I think these still exist, but the, the Iowa test of basic skills. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big deal. Every, every, I don't know if it was every year, it felt like every year, but you'd have to take these standardized tests and I would try to be in the upper 1%. That was really important to me, even as you know, fourth grader, fifth grader, when I got that report back, it just felt tremendous to me. And of course the teachers loved that. I tried to do my best and yeah. And so that kind of trickled into all aspects. It didn't matter if it was a basketball coach a policeman, whoever, if they were authority figure, I would do everything I could to get noticed and attention in a good way. But yeah, then that, you know, we can talk about this later, but years, years later into adulthood, that no longer served me. It was actually holding me back. Mm. Well, I, I would love to get into that now, actually. I think that's a, it's a great on-ramp into you know, mental health is a, a journey that is never ending, but I, I would love to start by talking about your mental health journey. And you already alluded to middle school was maybe mm-hmm. the beginnings. And I know that it really came to a head in your 20s. Yeah. And so I would I would love to hear, Matt, you explain a little bit about what when you realize I need to take a real look at this. This isn't just something that I can work away or get good grades away or get someone's approval away. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would love to hear you speak to that. Okay. Yeah. Would love to. So to the, you know, kind of going back a little bit back to middle school, uh, I was afraid to go anywhere. I got to that point where 12 to 13 years old, I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood. The threat of violence was present a lot. I saw a lot of people fighting from kids to adults. There was a lot of substance abuse in my neighborhood. It was a low income neighborhood. And by, you know, most people perceived us as having a little bit of money. So that, you know, in a way put a target on my back, but just all this constant threat of violence, it got to the point where I was afraid to just go outside. If my mom said, Hey, let's, you know, I'm going to buy you dinner. Let's go to McDonald's. I'd be afraid to go in the restaurant in fear that I would see somebody I knew and that they'd want to beat me up the next day. And so a lot of this was irrational, but I didn't know how to describe it. I didn't know how to talk about it. I would just say, mom, can you go in and get the food for me? So that's kind of that, okay, there's there's some mental illness here. Mm-hmm. Again, no language around it. Nobody really knew what to, you know, to diagnose or anything like that. Uh, I broke out of it a little bit when I got to high school, started to come out of my shell a bit more. 
even, you know, got involved in things like theater, more, you know, took leadership roles in the school band. And then when I got to college, all of the stuff kind of like from middle school came creeping back in, which I later came to find out that a lot of times for men, mental illness will hit in your late teens, early 20s. But I thought it was just who I was. I didn't realize it was a problem. So I did things to mask it. Initially, it was the anxiety, but it was also obsessive compulsive disorder. So I would start to have a lot of intrusive thoughts. And these thoughts were mostly violent in nature. There was some sexual ideation that I would have that was unwanted. I didn't want to think this way. And so I thought, oh, you know, am I a horrible person for having these thoughts? And I thought the thoughts are who you are, but I was wrong. Mm -hmm. But again, I couldn't, I didn't feel like there was any safety to talk to other people about this. I could go, you know, like I could go, hey, can we have a conversation? I'm having these really weird thoughts. What do you think? People would have been like, can you go away? I don't feel safe around you. That was my perception. And I think there was a lot of reality. This was back in... 1993, 94. Mm -hmm. So there was still a big, and you know, even today there's stigma around mental illness. But back then I think it was, there was a lot of stigma. So I didn't talk about it. I met my wife the very first day of college. We were in the same orientation group. And so I really lucked out. I won the lottery when I met her. She was, she became my best friend. She was the person I trusted with everything. And I told her a little bit about this stuff, but not a lot. I would share different things and she'd be like, well, you're, you know, if, if it gets bad, let me know. But, you know, you seem to be holding it together, you're taking care of things. It wasn't until I was 25 that things got really bad for me. Mm-hmm. So this is after college. Her and I had been married for a couple of years. Her name's Janie. Been married for a couple of years at that point. And I decided I wanted to get over my fear of heights. And the best way to do that, I thought was to learn how to skydive. So I recruited a bunch of people from work to go with me, to go through the training. And I didn't want to just go show up and do a tandem, you know, be strapped on the front of a guy and he does all the stuff. It's like, no, I'm going to learn everything I can because that's just kind of my nature. I'm going to learn how to do this and maybe this will be a new hobby for me. So I went through the two days of training and then it was time to jump. And we go up in the plane and this is a static line jump. So you're, for those that don't know, you're basically your parachute connected to the airplane by a static line. So when you jump up, it pulls the parachute for you and you just have to steer yourself down. So we get up to 3,300 feet uh, and the door opens and I'm first in line to go. And what I had to do was step out on this little step right out the door, grab onto the strut underneath the wing and hold on to it Superman style. And as I was doing that, I had a panic attack. And the thing that the, all of our training that we went through, what they said is once you go out the door, you can't come back in because you're putting the lives of everyone on that airplane in jeopardy. So once you step out, you have no choice but to jump. So everything in my body was screaming to crawl back into the plane. And I remembered the words. My instructor actually said, I will kick you out the, the out of the airplane if you try to come back in. 
so it felt like I was being like something was killing me in that moment. I was being attacked by a wild animal, that kind of fear. And so I let go of the wing. And uh, it was a moment where it was like I was disassociated. I, I had a moment. It was probably only two seconds, but there was a moment of where am I? Why is that plane flying away from me? What am I supposed to do? I forgot all my training. And as I see the airplane flying away from me, the parachute opens. And now I have a canopy above my head and there's a little radio on the shoulder. And it was the person down at the landing zone to help steer you in. And so without them, I would have ended up miles down the road from where I was supposed to land. But they said, flare your your parachute, turn left, turn right. And then they steered me right into the landing zone. As I was landing, though, I was probably 40, 50 feet above the, the landing zone. I heard in the radio, flare, flare, flare. He starts screaming at me to flare. I didn't know what flare meant. I, for, again, forgot all my training. So uh, I landed right in the middle of the landing zone, but I landed at full speed. I didn't slow my descent by flaring the parachute, slowing down and, and landing gently. So the feeling was uh, that I had in my body was similar to when I was a kid and I would jump off of a swing on a swing set. And uh, if you jumped a little too high, landed on your feet, you'd have this stinging sensation. Well, I had that stinging sensation throughout my whole body. And I thought that maybe I had injured myself pretty severely. So I laid on the ground and I kind of wiggled my toes and wiggled my fingers and people came running over and, you know, I kind of put a thumbs up that I'm okay. But yeah, it was, I later found out I actually ruptured a disc in my back. It didn't show up then, showed up a couple of years later. Anyway, fast forward to a week after that incident, I had it, you know, I was like, nope, never, never skydiving again. That was not an enjoyable experience. Didn't solve my fear of heights. I'm still scared of, of heights. And I was having a conversation with just a one-on-one -on -one kind of water cooler talk with a coworker. And out of nowhere, I have a, a panic attack. And it felt just like when I jumped out of the plane. And so I quickly excused myself and ran to the bathroom. And for a moment there, I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart was going to beat out of my chest. I had pain that was shooting up through my neck into my left arm. I didn't know what was going on. I thought it was something medical. And I just sat in the bathroom. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to anybody and say, hey, you should probably call an ambulance. I just stayed in there for some reason. Eventually, after about 10, 12 minutes, things calmed down and I was able to, to leave the bathroom. And so that was the beginning of an almost two-year period of severe mental illness. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you very much for sharing all that. I, As you were speaking, I jotted down a few things because I, I want to <laughs> underscore them. I think they're really important. That's, it's a very interesting note that for men that it's late teens and early 20s where it seems to be the challenge. That is certainly true for me. I certainly remember when I was in college, <clears throat> I had this feeling, it's hard to put into words, but I, I always was looking around me and scanning my environment. And I felt like everyone else had their shit together and that I was alone in my struggle. Yeah. I 
just, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I really relied pretty heavily. I wasn't an alcoholic necessarily, but I relied pretty heavily on things like alcohol to soothe my nervous system. Mm-hmm. And I'm just struck by the ways that men at that age or boys, whatever you want to say, we there's certainly socially acceptable ways that long term have really big consequences. And so I was I'm struck by that. It's a, an interesting insight. Something else that I'm struck by is you and I both share we were more uh, quieter people. And you didn't say this explicitly, but I know this to be true about you, or at least people thought this about you. And the same for me, there, there's a misconception that folks like us who are more reserved and uh, have maybe a less uh, expressive that we have our shit together, that we're more, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're not struggling inside in some way because it doesn't, it's not as readily apparent on the outside. And I'm just, I'm really always so surprised when, you know, I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me that there are still stories that pop up all the time about if it's an athlete or some sort of public figure that I go, oh, there's, I had, I had no idea. I never would have thought that about them. It's, it's such a common misconception. And it's, it's why I wanted to have you on for it, among many other reasons. It helps to really destigmatize what it means to talk about this openly. And, and you and I both know now that there's actually lots of liberation and freedom on the other side of being able to speak about it openly and to look at it instead of, retreat into as was my tendency to retreat into my corner and think I can't I can't show this to other people because that's extremely defective and doesn't seem like anyone else is going through it so I got to figure my stuff out in my own corner and from here I would just love to hear a how that showed up for you and b what did support look like initially? What was the the way that you were able to get yourself out of that place? And I know you didn't even say this in your answer, but I know that the panic attacks, it just kept getting worse and worse, mm-hmm. even to the to the point where it was multiple times a day at, at one point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons that I have told my story is because I went through two years of hell and I there was it was totally unnecessary. Uh, had there not been a stigma, had there been outlets for me to easily talk about what I was going through, I would have been able to get help soon, sooner, within just a few months of these things popping up for me. But it felt like none of that existed. And so what I've discovered is, and so I've been, I've been open about my story ever since it happened, but it was one-on-one. I would tell somebody, oh yeah, I'm, I'm mentally ill and this is what, and they what? What are you talking about? And then what I discovered in those moments was oftentimes they would say, yeah, you know what? I've never told anybody this, but this is what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And then I would be able to offer suggestions, point them in the right direction of where to get help. So that always felt good. And it wasn't until 2018 that I had the opportunity to tell my story on stage in front of people. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, very much a mission of this story isn't, I mean, yes, it's about me, but it's it's about getting the help that you need, giving yourself permission, seeing yourself in others. You know, when you were talking about 
how people have this perception of us. Well, after I ended up hospitalized because of this person I worked with, I got out of the hospital, got back to work. He pulled me to the side and I say he's probably 10, 15 years older than I was. And he said, Matt, I thought you were the most put together person in the office. If this can happen to you, it can happen to any of us. Because I masked it. I hid it. I tried to self-medicate. Alcohol became part of that equation. I didn't drink at work, but as soon as I got off work, I'd come home. Very first thing I'd do is pour a drink because it worked. Mm -hmm. It caused the anxiety to subside. I didn't feel like, you know, I was at a level 10 in terms of like tightness and heartbeat and all of that. It just one drink. Oh, I could take a breath. Mm -hmm. I could just relax. I didn't in the moment when that was happening, I didn't see the connection to the people who came before me, my relatives. This is very much a genetic thing. Mm -hmm. I, there was a lot of alcoholism in my family, both sides, my mom and dad's side. And I started later on, I found that connection that, oh, they were self-medicating as well. My one grandfather, um, my mom's father, served in World War II in Germany. He was on the front lines and got shot. And so he came back to the States with PTSD. Back then they called it shell shock and there was no help for you. So he self-medicated and it cost him his life. Eventually at the end of his life, his kidneys failed. My grandmother, who was married to him, died of cirrhosis at 55. So you can tell how much they drank. My mom broke the cycle, though. She started to see the signs that she was drinking uh, to self-medicate around the age of 30. Well, I didn't know any. I mean, I saw alcoholism. I thought if I drank, I would become an alcoholic. But it, I started to put that piece together like, oh, I'm treating this like it's medicine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, back to like what happened. I don't know if you want me to start there. Like, what did those two years look like or... Yeah. So after I had that initial panic attack, you kind of alluded to this, I would have one panic attack a week, usually. And then it got to be where I was having two or three panic attacks a week, a panic attack every day. As this was happening, my it was like anxiety ratcheted up my OCD. And so I started having more intrusive thoughts. In most cases, it was violent thoughts. So I am a very, that's kind of the, the cruelty of this condition is that it kind of picks at things that you never would want to do. I am inherently a nonviolent person. I hate violence in all of its forms, but the brain goes, okay, you're going to have, you know, it's part of your condition. You're going to have these violent thoughts. Pick up, you know, it could be any object in a room. Pick up that chair and throw it. This would be in the middle of a meeting. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Pick up that throw and it, uh, pick up that chair and throw it. It's, I describe it to people as being similar to having a song stuck in your head, mm. an annoying song like Baby Shark. I apologize for everyone <laughs> that now has Baby Shark stuck in your head. But having that, you know, it, it's not a song, it's a thought. And it just keeps repeating over and over. And there's nothing you can do to make that thought go away. So as that got worse, then my anxiety got worse. And then I started having multiple panic attacks a day. 
So this went on until February of 2002. And my wife comes to me and says that she's pregnant. And what should normally be a joyous occasion, I think I looked at her with no expression at all, because internally I'm thinking, how, how can I handle this? I can't even control myself. How am, how am I going to be able to be a father, support my wife, do all the things that I need to do that are necessary to be a, a father? And you know, it was very disappointing for my wife to see that kind of reaction out of me. And so I made the choice that it was time to see a doctor and uh, open up a little bit about what was going on. So I scheduled a time, went in to see my regular doctor, which uh, I will say, that's not what you should do. In some cases, it's okay, but it can, it can open the doors to other therapy. But what I needed was a psychiatrist. I was so severe at that point. So I went to see my regular doctor and he said, you know, I told him, yeah, you know, I'm having a lot of anxiety. I didn't talk much about the OCD, mostly just I'm having some anxiety. I, it's difficult to function and like, no problem. There's a pill for that. And put me on a prescription and didn't give me any of the warnings that should come with a medication like that. The first warning being, don't take yourself off. If you start it, stay on it. So I took it for four days and I had all of the worst side effects that you could have. And I remember feeling like this feels worse than the, you know, the mental issues that I was having. So I took myself off of it. And what that did was created a spiraling effect within four or five days after taking myself off, I was starting to hear voices. And this is all a run up until to my 27th birthday, you know, as I'm going through probably that last six months of this ordeal, I had the the irrational thought that I was going to die when I turned 27 because a lot of my idols died at 27. Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin. And I knew it was irrational because I'm not a rock star and uh, I wasn't doing hard drugs. And But, you know, it's just one of those uh, intrusive voices that were saying, no, you're going to die when you're 27. So... You know, having a you know, wife says she's pregnant, 27 is just on the doorstep there. And I've just taken myself off this medication. So this would have been, so my birthday is March 2nd. On February 28th, which was a Thursday, I went to bed early. The alcohol wasn't helping. I was definitely in kind of that uh, extreme spiral at that point. And I remember hearing two people having a conversation in my living room two men and I knew they weren't there. And I thought, this is, this is, this is it. This is, I've hit bottom the next morning I woke up. So it's now March 1st. And instead of going to the hospital, I went to work and I uh, walked up to my cubicle and there was a line of people waiting for me. So at the time I was the senior graphic designer at Ameritrade. It was just Ameritrade. It wasn't TD Ameritrade back then. And so it was beginning of the month and people wanted to ask about their, their projects. And that's the moment I snapped. And luckily I didn't snap in a violent way. Snapping was more, I just stood up, turned my computer off and I turned around my boss, her cubicle was to my back. 
So I turned around and I looked at her and I said, I need to leave right now or I'm going to hurt someone. Because the voices were so loud in my in my head that I didn't think I could control my actions at that point. It was almost like on autopilot. And she just gave me this kind of blank or semi-horrified look. Like, what are you talking about? And she just said, okay. And so I didn't know it at the time, but there's a word for that. I was in crisis Mm -hmm. and I was able to leave on my own. So normally, you know, when we talk about people in crisis, we talk about getting them help, not letting them leave, taking care of them, you know, calling the authorities, all of that kind of stuff. So instead there, nobody knew what to do. So I just walked out the front door called my wife and said, you should meet me at the hospital. Drove myself to the one hospital here in Omaha that has a mental unit and went into the ER. And at that point, uh, it was very much that rock bottom feeling. Like I have nothing left to lose, probably going to lose my life here. And so my wife arrived. They asked me, the intake nurse asked a lot of really important questions. The most key question was if I, if we let you go home, can you guarantee that you're, that you will be safe? And uh, it was the first like real moment of honesty for me. I said, no, nope, you should not let me go home. And she said, okay, we're going to, we're going to admit you. So they walked me up to the mental health floor. And at that moment, I remember it so vividly it's kind of like a lockdown. You can go in, but you can't get out those kind of doors. And I remember turning to my wife and kissing her goodbye, thinking, I'm probably never going to leave this floor. I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. And she's going to be forced to raise a child on her own. But I knew the best thing for her and the best thing for me in that moment was to walk through those doors. It was a moment of complete and total surrender because I no longer had control. So I walked through the doors with the nurse and she showed me the room. And within a couple of hours, I was able to meet with doctors. It was a doctor and I think two interns. And again, I had that, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to tell them everything. I'm not going to hold back. And so I shared with them what was going on in my head. And I thought that they would recoil and be afraid of me. And actually the opposite happened. They leaned in and said, we're going to help you. And that moment was so critical for me, feeling like I was the worst person in the world. Only really bad people have these kinds of thoughts. There is no help. There is no hope. But when that doctor said that, it was the first time I had felt hope in years. And again, it was that word surrender comes up. I surrendered to the process. I basically said, tell me what I need to do. I will do whatever you tell me. You will get no resistance out of me. And they said, well, we're going to put you on a couple of different medications, one being Xanax and the other being fluvoxamine, which is known as Luvox. And so I took those two things. I went to bed that night, woke up in the hospital on my 27th birthday. And this is March 2nd, 19, March 2nd, 2002. And I remember sitting up in bed, waiting for a panic attack to hit, and it didn't. And I thought, oh my God, 
this is what normal people feel like. And it was like the whole weight of the world had just left my shoulders. It just melted away. And I, w- I was just in complete shock. Now, that didn't mean it cured everything. It just meant that I was on the road to recovery. I could see the impact pretty early on. And, you know, my, it, my feelings of I was never going to leave the hospital evaporated. And I ended up leaving and it was, I probably could have left within just a couple of days, but this happened over a weekend. So I had to stay in a little longer, but just within four days, I was released from the hospital and I, and I had the, what I needed to do to get healthy. That was stay on the medication. If the medication I felt wasn't working, then talk to them about it and they would increase the dosage. Eventually we would find the the right dosage. I knew the dangers of Xanax. It wasn't something you wanted to be on long-term. So I was really careful about that. Meeting with a therapist was key. That was really, really important. And then the the final piece, which I would say is actually the most important piece for me, was mindfulness. Cultivating a mindfulness meditation practice that I've kept up with the last 20 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, again, I have a lot of different things that I want to reflect back because there's there's so much insight in your story and, and so much connection. I'm, I'm imagining that anyone who's tuned in right now is really connecting to your story in, in some way, as am I. But on a, a funny note to start, I, I was expecting Cobain, Hendrix, and, and Joplin maybe to get named. I, I wasn't expecting Baby Sharks. So that, that was a wonderful <laughs> little comic relief. <laughs> I'm sorry, listener, if you have the song stuck in your head again, but we're going to move right on. Another thing that I think is really important that is finally getting the airtime that it deserves, but it still feels a little more esoteric and and fringy, is that our genetics really matter with with this, with our mental health. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to a grandparent who did not process their trauma whether it's war or something that's a lowercase t trauma, that epigenetically gets passed down generation to generation. And I'm grateful that your mom said, maybe not the buck stops here, but I'm going to take a look at this and I want to, I want to do something about this. And Mm -hmm. in my experience, every generation that that does more work, it it becomes less and less prominent for the, the future generations. And it reminds me of a book that I'm sure you're familiar with, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, yeah, it really, uh, that book outlines so many different modalities that are helpful for us getting trauma unstuck from our body. And it also talks about how PTSD does get passed down generation to generation. So I think it's a really important note to make about your story. And... From here, there's there's so many directions we can go, but I would love to hear what the mindfulness practice that you've been doing for 20 years looks like, it, at least on a basic level. So mm-hmm. I, I think maybe it's also important to underscore that hope is really, really powerful. And you mm-hmm. getting the that connection with the doctors or nurses saying, we can help you. And they didn't recoil when when you said the intrusive thoughts and maybe how graphic they were being met in that moment and not retreating away. I'm sure that that had a profound healing effect as well. And Mm -hmm. with that hope comes and then 
the maybe the hard work actually begins in some ways. I, I would love to hear what a mindfulness practice looked like to you, at least in the beginning stages. Yeah. So yeah, 20 years ago, there were, there had been, you know, there's a lot of books written. It still wasn't as widely known as it is today. So there was a lot of investigation I had to do going to places like Barnes and Noble or what was their competitor? That's now I'm pretty, I'm blanking borders, you know, going to their Buddhist section and just thumbing through books and seeing which ones resonated with me. Where could I learn? So I started my investigation just by reading. Eventually I joined a Zen meditation center here in Omaha became a community, joined a community of practitioners, which helped solidify what I was doing because, you know, I was getting education from the teachers there on what meditation looks like and then practicing with a sangha every Sunday. Uh, so that became my church. It started off that way. What I would say is, and I say this, a lot, you know, to a lot of my own, my clients, the first three years are really hard. Mm-hmm you don't necessarily see the benefits from it. You can start to sense that this is beneficial within a few months, but I didn't really feel the full effect, at least for me, it was three years. There was a lot of what they call monkey mind. So thoughts arising, not being able to quiet the mind. That can be really frustrating. It can also be really frustrating to just sit quietly for five five minutes. We're just not, you know, unless we're sitting in front of a TV or doing something where we're being entertained, a lot of times just sitting in silence for five minutes is really, really difficult. If you're new to the, you know, so I I just want to honor that for people. If it, if you can't sit for five minutes, sit for two. This isn't something that you're going to be great at. It's not something you're going to master. It's just a practice. It just is. There's not good meditation, they're not bad meditation. Uh, So take those labels away from it. It just is. What I discovered though, after three years of doing it, being consistent in my practice, was that I found that I have a multitude of voices in my head. And that those voices aren't me. Mm -hmm. They are just voices, just random things that come up. And so I started to learn to how to name those voices so that in real time, when something was happening to me, I could go, that's the voice of fear. Uh, Mindfulness leads to awareness. You start to wake up to who you are, wake up to your true nature, wake up to what you're thinking at any given time. And it is a lifelong practice. I I have not mastered it. I still feel very much, you know, even though I'm 20 years into it, I feel like a novice, Mm -hmm. but I can sit for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, very comfortably get that time in that I need. Some days I don't meditate and that's okay. You, You find out what the right practice is for you. But again, like, you know, just understanding what the voices are, what are my thoughts right now? What am I feeling? And that really helped inform the coaching practice that I developed, uh, learned this from other coaches, learned this from other meditation. None of this is my own. I won't take credit for, you know, like, oh, I came up with this stuff. No, I didn't. Uh, this is all things that have been passed down that I've been able to employ. Uh, 
And then, you know, it's, you understand what you're thinking and feeling and somatics is a big piece of this. Where do you feel this in your body? If you feel anger to a point you made earlier about what is acceptable for men, what I've discovered is that it's really, men can are only allowed to be angry, maybe sad or happy. Mm. And if you're anything other than that, then you know, oh, you're emotional. And it's like, no, you're just as emotional. You're just limited in your language. You're limited in what you're able to call your emotion. Mm -hmm. And if you opened it up more, there's a whole, you know, I love this uh, rainbow or this color wheel of emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, there's various ones online, but I think it's fantastic. So as men, it's really important that we develop a relationship with our thoughts and feelings. And certainly our body as well. I'm, I'm glad you mm -hmm. brought that in. But somatics is, has been instrumental in my journey as well. I am not sure if you're familiar with the study. And I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to try and quote the exact numbers. But there was a study that a psychologist did where a group of participants were asked to sit in a room alone for 15 minutes. And they could either sit quietly for 15 minutes with no distraction. Or they could buzz and shock themselves to stop the 15 minutes from happening. And it was something like 68%. I, again, I don't want to be quoted on the exact number, but it was a majority. It was above 50% decided to buzz themselves because they did not want to sit in stillness, in solitude for 15 minutes. And a quote that I often come back to is all of humanity's suffering comes from their inability or our inability to sit quietly in a room alone for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, mindfulness, it helps us develop that skill, but it also, to your point, it helps us develop awareness of our thoughts to not identify with our thoughts and to become aware of our emotional experience. It's such a myth that, that men feel less than women. I think every human feels and has a, a broad spectrum of different emotions and Anyone who is saying otherwise, I think, is probably pretty blocked off and, and not really having a full, colorful experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a couple of curiosities and, and follow-ups. And I'll start with the therapist that you are seeing. Mm -hmm. There are lots of great therapists, but also in my experience, there are some that they're helpful in some way, but you're not covering the ground that you necessarily, that makes a, a large impact. And I, I have in my, I wouldn't say in my circle, but I've spoken to a lot of people who have trouble finding a good therapist. And I would be curious to hear what, what do you think helped you or what was connective about your therapist? How are they supportive for you? And what do you think makes a good therapist? This could apply to coaching as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, in some ways, I think I did luck out with the therapist that I got. I only met, ended up meeting with her for probably six months after my hospitalization. My first therapist, I should say, uh, wasn't my only one. But the first one, there were a lot of good practices, right? Because so much of what I, there was a lot of avoidance in what I was doing. So being able to walk me through a situation, go out into the world and build up a toolkit. So when I felt... Oh, here comes the panic attack. Being able to meet it with something 
instead of just letting it run away and happen, you know, let it happen to me. Instead, I had choice in the matter. And she taught me that here's what you, here's what you can do. Here are the skills. So I developed a lot of skills with her. She was just a great fit. And that's so much a part of this is finding a therapist that, that is the perfect, it may not be the perfect fit, but is a good fit for you. Oftentimes what happens, and I know that, you know, a lot of my clients I talk with, they have that one therapy experience and they'll be like, ah, it didn't work for me. Maybe it wasn't a good fit. Same thing with a coach. You has to be a hundred percent great fit. Otherwise you're not going to open up. You're not going to maybe share what you need to. You might not take the, the, the work, the practices out into the world and take them as seriously as you should. So having that, uh, having good fit is everything. And then, you know, just a, a therapist that will listen to you. Mm-hmm. There are therapists who think they know it all before you even say anything. And they're, they're not a good fit. It makes me wonder how they're still in business. Uh, but they do exist. A good therapist will say less than you do, speak way less than you do, do a lot of active listening. Here's what I'm hearing you say. Is this right? Does this resonate? And then giving you the right course for you. And if things don't feel right, you know, there there is the, the patient responsibility here of, you know, I had to fully surrender. I think some people, when they don't hit crisis, they don't hit rock bottom, they might not surrender to the process. There might be some resistance there. They might not open up all the way, allowing that therapist to have a view into what's really going on. So that's important. It goes both ways here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the next curiosity that I had, I, I think this is pretty related to what we've already been speaking about, but one thing that you presence in advance of this conversation is mental health first aid training. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to hear, I guess, A, what is mental health first aid training? And B, what are maybe some of the ways that we, maybe it's myths or maybe it's ways that we just, we miss it. We, we don't communicate effectively when someone says, I don't know, let's just go with an extreme example. Someone has suicidal ideations. In my experience, there's a way in which we get dodgy about that and don't want to address it head on. So I would love to hear you explain what mental health first aid is and and some of the ways that we can effectively communicate with folks who are really in pain. Yeah. Yep. Uh, So mental health first aid is uh, it's a course anybody can take. And, you know, depending on the size of your community, I think it's most places have at least some place you can go to train. So just as you would um, go get trained in first aid to know how to, you know, if somebody breaks a leg or gets a cut or a burn, <clears throat> how to address that, uh, it's similar uh, to that. So what happens when you encounter a person that's in crisis? Most of us don't know what to do. We don't have the tools. We might be afraid to address what's going on. It's uh, If somebody were to, let's say, break their leg, most of us know to make the person lie down, try to stabilize that leg, call the proper authorities. If, you know, if you're, if they're not able to get to a hospital, call an ambulance, all of those kinds of things. And with mental health first aid, it is giving you the tools to effectively show up 
when somebody you encounter is what you feel is having a mental health crisis. You know, you talk, you talked about suicidal ideation. It gives you the language to be able to take that topic head on. Often, I think the myth here is that if you bring up the topic of suicide with somebody, that they will, that you're putting the idea in their head. And that's just not true. It's it's not going to make things worse, but it helps you kind of have a good conversation about it. So saying to somebody, you know, are you thinking of taking your life? And if they say yes, you know now what the protocol is. You know, have you, do you have a day and time picked out to do this? Yes. Have you thought about how you're going to do this? Yes. Okay, we're going to get you help. And so you you feel equipped for those situations. It's only it's an eight hour course. I did mine on a Saturday. I organized wow. a group of people to go do it. You know, and they give you a lot of background history, a lot of statistics. You just come out of it feeling prepared to take that on instead of clueless. Like, what do we do here? Should we just let them like my situation? It would have been great if there was somebody who was trained in mental health first aid. My boss could have said, Hey, Matt, can you just sit in this room for a second? Don't leave yet. Mm-hmm. And had somebody come in and uh, make sure that I got to safety. Mm-hmm. Sounds like one of the best benefits, and this connects back to when you started to feel hope in your life. One of the best benefits of taking a course like this is that we can hear really challenging information or thoughts from someone else, and we don't recoil in response, right? We are prepared mm-hmm. and meet the moment and meet the person where they are. And there's just, there's so much more possibility that can be created there when someone really feels seen and heard, even when it's something that extreme, or rather, especially when it's something that extreme, mm-hmm. I think that it's it can make a, a massive difference. And it's certainly an area of development for myself. I, I have lots of room to improve there. But from here, Matt, I, I would love to actually t- transition. We've spoken about your 27th birthday and mm-hmm. uh, the implications there and, and where you were in your life. And I know that your 43rd birthday also was a, a big, a momentous part of your life and your journey. And yeah. I would love to hear what happened on your 43rd birthday. And and from here, we can get into the, the work that you're doing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I usually spend time uh, around my birthday just for reflection. You know, there are a couple of key moments, you know, even backing up to when I turned 40, you know, it was kind of a surreal moment, like, oh, geez, I'm 40 now. But I didn't have any sort of midlife crisis. Uh, I just reflected, okay, what does 40 mean to me? And then that time I was working with a lot of really young, smart, tech savvy people, which I felt like from a smartness standpoint, I just couldn't keep up. They were so bright, talented. But what I realized was that I had a lot of experience. I had seen a lot of situations and how they've played out. And that was my dipping my toe into wisdom. And that I then could spend the next 40, 50 years of my life, if I'm lucky to live that long, uh, cultivating wisdom to be able to still um, have an impact and help people. Fast forward to 43, I had, uh, for some reason, I just remember sitting there and thinking, not necessarily about 43, but I started thinking about 50 and that in seven years, I was going to be 50. And what did I want to do with the rest of my life? And so I 
was thinking about different things and got got to thinking about what I was currently doing. So I worked for a company called Techstars. And uh, at the time, I was the global director of an event called Startup Week. So Startup Week is a celebration of uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems, different cities all around the world. I worked with 90 different cities during my tenure, uh, learned a lot. But the thing I thought, what is it about this job that I love most? And what I kept coming back to was working with those individual community leaders who actually put the event on. It was my job to coach them and teach them the playbook, teach them best practices. <clears throat> but it was really, it's their job to, to execute on all of it. But it was that coaching piece that I said, I absolutely love this. Uh, so it made sense that, okay, I've got seven years. Uh, I don't know where I'll be. I don't know if I'll be at Techstars for another seven years, but what can I what can I do with this coaching thing? So reached out to some people that I knew were coaches. They were very gracious in giving me some advice. They said, get your own therapist, get yourself a coach, and then join a coaching program, certification program. Uh, so I sat with the thought of going back to therapy for a little bit. I was hesitant. There was some resistance coming up. Mainly because I thought life had had never been better. Every everything was clicking on all cylinders. I had a good job. Things at home were good. Why would I go back to therapy? Mm -hmm. But I took their advice. I said they must know something I don't know. So let's take the leap. I'm going to go back to therapy, and I know I'm going to sit down with the therapist, and he's going to say, "Okay, tell me what's going on," and I'm going to look at him and go, "I don't know." But it was worth the effort. What I found out was it was. A, you know, I was, I saw that therapist for about five months <clears throat> and it was so incredibly impactful mm -hmm. to, to go. I think everyone should have therapy. Everyone should see a therapist, you know, at least once every three months, just to be able to sit down and say, this is what I'm feeling right now. Mm -hmm. It, you know, the blind spots that were in my life were around the obligations I felt as the oldest child. Mm -hmm. Now that I have aging parents, what are my responsibilities around that? The people pleaser in me. Mm -hmm. How much is that showing up, especially with my father? My father was going to, he lived out in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. And uh, his, uh, his wife had died a number of years ago. And he was going to move back to the Midwest, back to my hometown. And for years, I could keep him at arm's length. I could say, you know, I'd see him two, maybe three times a year. I would put up with him during those times because honestly, we were diametrically opposed on just about everything. And uh, so I'd have my short visits with him and okay, that's good. But now he's going to be virtually on my doorstep. And what was I going to do with that? So I had the opportunity to work through that. Uh, one of the key questions my therapist asked me, and it was just like, this light go, you know, went off in my head was he, he asked around a, a question about obligation. Why do you feel obligated? And I, I didn't have a good answer. I mean, look, I'm the first, you know, I'm the, the oldest child and I've always felt like I was the responsible one. I have to do these things. And when he said, you have no obligation, hmm. the freedom I felt in that moment, 
uh, no, I had a lot of work to do on that. So when, you know, I'd have conversations with my father and being able to say, no, I can't do that, dad, and stand up for myself, which was really, really difficult. So that was very, very powerful for me. Uh, ended up getting my own coach. Great guy, works. Uh, he's one of the partners at Reboot in Boulder, Colorado, a guy named Dan Putt. Uh, worked with Dan for five months and uh, finished up that work and then decided it was time for me to get my certification. Uh, so I joined a certification program out of Asheville, North Carolina called Presence-Based Coaching and started work on my uh, ACC or Associate Coaching Certification. Uh, loved it so much that I almost immediately jumped into uh, the PCC, the professional coaching certification work, uh, ended up getting my PCC in April of this year. So beautiful. And I beat, uh, my deadline or my timeline was 50. Uh, I actually went out on my own, formed my own coaching practice at the age of 45. So it's been two years now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'd love to hear, I'm, I'm curious actually what, uh, it's called, is it Prairie Sattva, is that how you Yeah, it? Prairie Sattva. Yep. Prairie Sattva. It, does that have, what does that literally translate to? So uh, it's a portmanteau of two words, prairie uh -huh. and sattva. Uh, one of my favorite concepts from Buddhism was that of a bodhisattva. So a person who helps people to wake up. I took a bodhisattva vow many years ago. And so that concept, uh, you know, there's the two words, bodhi. And then sattva, and sattva meaning wholesomeness and purity. I am very much a product of the prairie. You know, there's some people who are, I'm an you know, ocean person or a mountain person. For years, I fought the, well, I guess I had a lot of resistance to the prairie. I wanted so badly to love the ocean and love the mountains, and I do. But the older I get, the more I realize I am a product of the prairie. Uh, nothing is more beautiful to me than just hills and grassland. And it wasn't until I was way into adulthood that I realized this is this is who I am. These are my people. And so I wanted that to be a part of what I named the practice. So kind of a translation of the word would be wholesomeness and purity of the prairie. And you started to get into it a little bit, but I, I would love to hear the particulars about your coaching practice. And in a way, you've already named all of this, but I, I would love to hear you speak more to it with regard to there's, I'm sure there's mindfulness elements of it. Mm -hmm. There's somatics, which isn't separate from mindfulness, but, and then it sounds like there's honoring each person's wholeness and helping them return to their true essence, I, I would suppose yeah. is what it sounds like. And yeah, just could you could you elaborate on or expound on what it's I guess what's your view of coaching and and what is coaching like with Matt? Yeah. So there's a quote that I absolutely love from Ram Das, which is we're all just walking each other home. And that's really like the bare essence of coaching. I work with people who are interested in coming home to themselves. The way that they typically meet me is through a business context. I work with all kinds of leaders, but primarily startup founders and startup CEOs. So 
usually what what happens is they're talking to somebody, they're interested in coaching, and then I get a referral. My business is 99% referral based. And so, you know, usually it's, I'm struggling in my business. I'm struggling being a business leader. This is really difficult. Difficult Entrepreneurship is lonely, especially if you're the leader. You have to put on a good face to your employees, your investors, uh, oftentimes your spouse, but inside there's turmoil. And so I think every founder should have a coach and a therapist, but if they start with coaching, that's fine. And what I describe it as, it's a very holistic practice. So I don't say executive, I don't hold myself out as an executive coach. I don't say it's business coaching. What I say is it's growth and development coaching mm-hmm. so that it can be holistic. So you, yes, we can talk about issues with your startup. If you're raising money, whether that's pre-seed, seed, series A, whatever stage you're at, I know all the the acronyms. I was a former startup founder myself, so I know the struggle there. But I place a really high importance on how are you showing up? Uh, How aware are you of what's going on inside your mind and body? If you're not aware, it's basically like operating on autopilot all of the time. You're just going from crisis to crisis. You're reactionary. Your best best self is not showing up. Mm -hmm. So we put uh, a great deal of focus on those things. Uh, It starts off with a lot of self-observation a lot of checking in with yourself noticing what it what it what does trigger you putting names to it being able to name your thoughts and feelings we talk a lot a lot and a lot of this stuff i didn't invent i learned it from great people uh, that came before me but widening the gap between stimulus and response fancy way of saying pause what you're doing and count to 10 take a deep breath but it's a little deeper than that like, okay, what, what's going on here, right? Why does that one particular person trigger me? Yeah, Peeling back the layers to see, oh, okay, things are showing up. Typically, you know, we formulate this operating system. This operating system starts to be cultivated typically in adolescence. And so our 12 and 13-year-old self show up in the boardroom when we're 35. Mm-hmm. If we're not aware of it, it controls us. But if you start to become aware of it, then you have the practices to say, I'm not going to operate that way anymore. It doesn't serve me. There are new habits that I'm going to undertake. And uh, yeah, with practice and time that you can operate a totally different way. Beautiful. I'm curious. I'm finding myself curious. The listener isn't going to be able to see the video, but I see a couple of pictures behind you. I also see a, I guess I would call it a statue. I, I would be curious. Yeah, Buddha. It's, it's, is it the Buddha? I, I yep. would love to hear the maybe different totems that you have that you find grounded. It's, it seems you also have a plant behind you. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear what are some of the things that you have cultivated in your environment that help you stay grounded and present and are, that you're able to walk yourself home with. Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. So there are quite a few Buddhas up around the home. I have different things that, you know, just like what my, my wife leaves me little, like she'll cut a, mm. a heart out of a oh. leaf and different rocks that I keep that this one I got when I was going through my certification. For those who can't see, one of my uh, people in my cohort, 
she found the rock. We were supposed to give each other a gift. So she found the rock and then wrote healer on it. And so I keep those kinds of things as reminders. Uh, it's really important as a coach that I ground myself and be as present as possible when there's a client, typically through Zoom. At this point, I'm doing 100% Zoom calls because mm-hmm. uh, I don't have any clients in Omaha. But I have clients from London to Singapore to Bangladesh at this point. So I can wow. do everything through through Zoom. But just being able to stay centered and mindful. And some of these little objects I have up around me, there's this neat little shell, the petrified shell thing. So, yeah. And then I also have my, are you familiar with a Dorje a Buddhist? Yeah. It's like, it's sitting over there, but it's, it's like a representation of this weapon, but it literally translates to like thunderbolt of clarity of enlightenment. Right. So that stays with my little, I have this little meditation area just over there with uh, incense. So yeah, a lot of little things to remind me to be here now. Mm -hmm. I know that you and I share the quality of introversion and, and we're both, it seems that we're both pretty sensitive as well. And so in my experience, that means that I have to be really mindful of the way that I manage my energy. And what, what does that look like for you personally? I imagine a lot of the listeners that are tuned in also can identify with maybe being introverted and certainly being sensitive and what that, what that means about how to manage energy and environment. So in addition to the totems, and for example, one of the things that we spoke a little bit about before we actually jumped on the call to record was that you leave lots of space between calls because you know that it's going to be pretty energetically taxing to do a a long podcast like this. Yeah. Yeah. Coming to terms with my introversion and my sensitivity was a years long effort. I thought that there was something wrong with me and the world told me that there was something wrong with me because it, it leans towards extroversion. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I went through a process, again, to borrow from Jerry Colonna at Reboot, this radical self-inquiry, doing the work to know yourself better than anyone else could ever possibly know you. And the thing that kept that, that did present itself was, I am an introvert, and that comes with certain rules of engagement. It's okay to step away from things and say, I don't have the energy to do that. Before I lived in a world of FOMO and I embraced JOMO, the joy of missing out. (laughs) Uh, Because there were so many instances where, you know, there would be some sort of startup gathering happening. All these founders were there. And I just felt, oh, you know, I'd see the tweets and I'd be like, oh, even though I'm tired, I need to be at this event. I need to be relevant. Mm -hmm. I need to be seen. And I'd get there and I would say to myself, what the hell am I doing here? This is the last place I want to be. But FOMO won out. So now I like I embrace Jomo. And so when I see those things come up, I say to myself, ah, I've given myself a gift. I don't have to be there. Mm -hmm. Sensitivity. So this is especially problematic if you're a a man, that if you are a sensitive male, there's something wrong with you. Toughen up. You need thick skin. Those messages, I constantly heard those messages. So it wasn't until probably my late 30s that I discovered that sensitivity is a superpower. Mm. That I can 
pick up on a lot of nonverbal things happening. Uh, I can walk into a room and I'm really good at understanding who wants what, what they're trying to show, what mask are they wearing, especially as a coach being sensitive. I can pick up on so many things that aren't said and be able to say to a client, Hey, I might be wrong about this, but this is what I'm sensing right now. And they're like, yep, you see it. Mm. So I embrace all those things, introversion. And it is about having a toolkit and saying, what do I need right now? So, you know, I've had to go through my own practice. It's not just, here's the things that I coach about. I do them all the time as well. What am I feeling? Where do I feel it in my body? And the most important question is, what do I need right now? Hmm. So especially as an introvert, I'll be able to say, okay, I've got to do this high energy thing. And to fill up the gas tank again, I'm going to need two hours of quiet. I'm going to probably need to read, go on and take my dog on a walk so that I I can get ready for the next thing that I need to show up for. Uh Are there any books that pertain to anything that we've uh, spoken about today so far that you would recommend? It, it could be around introversion, it could be around coaching, mental health, any anything at all that we've spoken about today, books that or resources that you'd point people to that we haven't already spoken about today? Yeah, boy, there's, there's so many books. A book that I recently read within, I guess, the last year and a half, The Joy of Living, hmm. Absolutely fantastic book. There's it's by a monk, and I wish I had it here so I could say his name appropriately. Uh, but just look up Joy of Living. And he actually came to uh I believe he was he Nepal in the I think he was in Nepal, came over to the US, and while he was meditating, you know, they they did the studies, MRIs uh, while he was in meditation. So a lot of the stuff that we talk about in meditation and its benefits, there's actually science behind it. They were able to see that you are able to rewire your brain, that in meditation, it has this ability to make different connections, calm your body, all of this stuff they've proven with science. So that when I'm talking to somebody, because you know a lot of my clients are highly educated, very technical. So this stuff can come off as wooey. And when I say, no, there's science that backs this up. Oh, okay. I'm, you know, gives them permission to, to investigate it and see the benefits for themselves. So joy of living is a good one. If you're interested in just dipping your toe into coaching the book, the very first book I read about the topic was the coaching habit. Mm. So whether you become a coach or not, if you're just a manager or a leader of people, the coaching habit is a really good framework for you know how do you employ coaching techniques to get the best out of people Mm -hmm. do you remember sorry to cut you off i I would love to hear more but with regard to the coaching habit it's michael bungay steiner correct is that the yeah yeah do you remember some of the questions i think it could be like you already named it could be really helpful for folks who aren't coaches who are just interested in being more effective managers or leaders yeah yeah the topics like Active listening, Mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of times when there's a situation of hierarchy, how are you showing up as a leader? Uh, Are you truly listening to what your people have to say? Flip that around. There's aspects of servant leadership, which is a great topic to dive into. 
I think every leader should be a servant leader. How do you set your team up for success? There's ways to do that instead of dictating. The other thing I think in this book is the five whys. So in order to really get the, to the heart of any issue, you have to ask why five times. Because a lot of times your team will come in, a team member, oh, this is happening. This is a problem. Okay, tell me why. And it gets them to start to solve their problem from themselves. Instead of always staying at the surface, let's get below that. Yeah. What's actually going on? And usually you can tease out all the information you need to by asking those five whys. So really good tips and tricks like that in there. Awesome. And I, I did cut you off. So it, were the, was there anything else with regard to books? It's a little dry, but I think it's fantastic. Zen mind, beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, by Suzuki. A really good book. And I, I wouldn't say sit down and read the whole book from cover to cover. Read two or three pages at a time. Sit with it. See how what you can get out of it. But it's a really, really powerful book that I've returned to over the years. Yeah, I have... There's so many books. Usually what happens is, you know, a client will say, I'm going through this. And then I go, oh, you should read this book. But yeah, start there and we can get you the right place. Yeah. I mean, that's that's plenty to chew on for now. Well, Matt, there's, I, I will and maybe in a little bit invite you to bring in anything else that you wanted to speak about today if we haven't already. But there's just one more topic that I wanted to unpack with you. And I mm -hmm. know that it might not be the case anymore, but I know that you and I share a fear of public speaking. And mm -hmm. I would, yeah, it'd be great to hear you unpack that. And also, I, I have written down here, who is my Leon? And if you could connect yeah. both of those, that would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my biggest fears, in addition to heights, is public speaking, or was, I should say, was public speaking. And I saw that my that I, I was trying to avoid it whenever possible. So I'd get an invitation to do some sort of either presentation or speak about a certain topic. I would look for every excuse to turn it down. And only if there, if I was backed into a corner, would I say yes to it. And I, uh, I realized that was holding me back. And so this was probably, yeah, you know, I was still I'd probably just entering into my forties. And I saw that if I was going to have the, if I wanted to make the impact that I wanted to make, that it would be important that I be able to get up in front of a group of people and speak. Even though I'm an introvert, I'm very sensitive and suffer from anxiety. It was a goal that I set out for myself. So I ended up making it a goal that whenever I would be asked to speak within reason, I had to say yes to it. And I can tell you that terrified me, but I still... I made it a goal. And so those first few instances that came up, I was like, oh, what did I do to myself? You <laughs> idiot. <laughs> but I made the commitment. So I said, yes. And it's one of those things where, yeah, it's hard. It is really hard, especially if you have that fear. Mouth gets dry. Heart feels like it's beating out of your chest. You forget what you're talking about. All of those things come up, but I just kept pushing myself to do it. And what I found was that I didn't die, that I would, you know, be done with my talk. I survived it. I didn't know if it was good or not. Didn't matter. People clapped. So 
Yeah, that was nice. They didn't boo me. <laughs> so it, that was public speaking very much is one of those things that you just have to do it. You have to push yourself. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. A little later on, though, I discovered a technique that actually is taught to athletes, Olympic athletes. Uh, so if you ever see like before a big race, let's say it's going to be, you know, the, the hundred meter dash or something. And a reporter is able to talk to the athlete. They'll say, are you nervous for your race? And if the athletes trained properly, appropriately, they'll say, no, I'm excited because you're accessing the exact same nerves. And so I started using that for every, anytime before I go on stage, uh, I'll spend 10 to 15 minutes before I go up there and I'll sense into my body and I'll see that anxiety. And I'm very, you know, uh, I have an intimate relationship with it at this point. So I'll name what's coming up. Okay. There's fear. There's anxiety. Where am I feeling in my body? Huh? I feel it in my chest, feel it in my stomach, kind of a sick feeling, butterflies. And then I go through the process of transferring that energy into excitement. And I'll just say, no, I'm excited. And even as I just said that word to you, my body is having this somatic response to the word excited. So instead of sitting in my stomach, it now shifts to my lower back, goes up my spine. And when I know I've made a full transition of the energy is when the when I feel this, this energy go through my arms into my fingertips, specifically my ring fingers. And when I touch my thumb to my ring finger like this, and I feel the energy there. I'm like, I've done the, I've done the shift successfully and I can get up there. doesn't mean that uh, the fear is not still there. It's just that I'm ready to go. And it takes me about 30 seconds. I'll make sure I talk slowly. I'll have some pauses in there so that I, you know, when I'm actually, the audience has no idea, but what actually I'm doing is getting oxygen into my body. Mm. They just think, you know, oh, well, he's a practice speaker. He's pausing. But nope, mm -mm. I'm getting <laughs> oxygen in. I make sure to have what I need. What do you know? So I'll say, what do I need on stage with me? I need water. And I can't fumble with a cap. I can't have a bottle and try to unscrew it and hold a microphone. You know, it has to be very simple. Like, oh, there's the stool. Here's my water. Make sure that I pause to take a water break. Sometimes my hand will be a little shaky. That's okay. Uh-huh take the drink and then go on with what I'm, what I'm doing. And the follow-up is then this leads really nicely into who is my Leon? So what, what does that question right. mean? Yeah. So it gives purpose to what, what I'm doing uh, specifically around when I tell the story of my mental health journey. And the reason I say this is because it's, so it's a little mantra before I uh, go on stage very first time that I gave a talk on this topic, I was invited to speak at a conference. It's called the Fireside Conference, a few hours north of Toronto, Toronto. And originally, I was asked to come speak about startup community building. And I said yes to that. But there was this nagging feeling like, eh, I don't think anybody really wants to hear about this. Maybe some people. But I really want, I think I feel ready to talk about my illness. And so I reached back out to them and I said, Hey, I just want to throw this out there. I would like to talk about mental health specifically for founders. Cause this was a, it was a startup event. 
And they said, perfect. We are, one of our themes for this year's conference is mental health. And it, <laughs> I had a moment of, oh man, be careful what you ask for. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. part of me was like, I need to do this. I need to talk about it. Maybe they'll say no and I can get out of it. But they said yes. And so I gave that very first talk and I was a little bit terrified. It was the first time in front of a group that I would be sharing the intimate details of what I had gone through. And when I finished up, well, the response was really, really good. And I had several people who wanted to talk to me afterwards. And one gentleman in particular was had suffered greatly. And he asked me to go on a walk with him. And I did. We ended up by this lake and he just, he said, until I heard your story, I thought I was the devil. And he just broke down crying. Big guy, mm. big, strong man is crying. And, you know, we talked about it and I gave him uh, my advice on where to get help, how to get help. Here are the things that you should talk about. We've stayed in touch ever since, but what it does is I say that to myself who is my, because that was his name, who is my Leon today? Because even if just one person in the audience gets something out of my story, that's all that matters. Mm. And usually there's a few people every, you know, when I do this, that come up to me and want to share their story. And so, yeah. Well, thanks for unpacking so much of your story today. Before I move into the last couple of questions here is is there anything that we haven't spoken about already today that you would like to invite into the conversation now i I know it's been it's been full of all the things of many of the things that are really important to you but is there anything that you would like to invite in now yeah we did cover a lot of territory no i would just say you know similar themes of you owe it to yourself to be healthy if you're you know if you're masking something If you're just trying to hold it together, you deserve healing. You deserve to be healthy. It's actually going to benefit the people around you when you do this. Sometimes it can feel selfish when we focus on ourselves, but it's not selfish because it has us just being human beings walking around the world has ripple effects. And so if you put that focus into healing your health, your well-being, how you're showing up, there's just so much return on investment when you do those types of things. So I really encourage it. And especially if, you know, if there's just inklings that something's wrong, there's nothing wrong with getting help now. Don't wait two years like I did. Well, thank you, Matt. I I actually do have one curiosity before I move into the last couple of questions. And it's with regard to I I guess public speaking is the most direct way, but maybe for a little bit of color, when I I had a crippling fear of public speaking, and as a matter of fact, my my background professionally is in accounting. And one of the reasons that I chose accounting as a profession was because of my fear of public speaking. And so I, I, in a lot of ways, I avoided it my whole life. And I got to a certain point, it was probably about six years ago now, where I was promoted from associate to senior associate. And I was asked to lead a training that was going to be, it, it wasn't my training only to lead, but it was me and one other person presenting in front of what was set to be about 70 people, which for me was incredibly overwhelming. And 
induce a, a massive amount of anxiety. I would say for two or three months before bed, I was just ruminating on uh, leading up to the presentation. I was just ruminating on all the different things that might have gone wrong, all the ways I might freeze or stutter or mess up in front of people. And I don't know what it was that compelled me to just keep marching forward, but I did, which leads me to my question, because it's a massive curiosity of mine. I think it's a tough dance. And actually, I'll add in also, I have taken public speaking classes, and there was one class that was my favorite. It's through the Public Speaking Center of New York is the organization. And the instructor always had us do an exercise that if we were on an interval of zero to 10 were to scale what our anxiety level was, he always did something that was at highest, like a seven, probably. And so my, my curiosity and question is what, what for you is the boundary between um, actually maybe on the verge of a panic attack and this is in the panic zone or it's just a little too far versus this is what my edge is. And I know that I'm ruminating a lot and I have lots of wild thoughts about my go wrong, but mm -hmm. I, I guess the, the question is where, what is the, if there is one, what is, is there an established line between this is not in my reach and this is? Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, I'm thinking of like a moment where I felt like I was going to have a panic attack mm -hmm. recently. And it was because there was a startup event and I showed up as an attendee. And the lead organizer of that event said, Matt, can you sit near the front? <clears throat> and I thought she just, you know, wanted me up there and just to pull people up, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of times people fill into a room and they start to fill in the back. So anyway, I sat up there and then about five minutes before the event started, she said, actually, can you be one of the panelists? Mm. And I didn't have the time to go through my routine of shifting into excitement. So I said, yes, I should have said no, but I said yes. And I went up and I was one of the panelists and I started feeling the sensations for me. Panic starts in my lower back. It's this adrenaline and like, oh, there it is. And so here I am in front of a, you know, there are probably a hundred people, eh, 75, hundred people in the room. And I'm like, oh, here it comes. And I haven't had that feeling in a long time. And so I had to do all of my tools in real time in front of mm -hmm. people. Luckily, I wasn't talking. I didn't have to say anything. But that was like one of those edges where it's like, oh man, this is happening. This is real. There are people staring at me right now. Luckily, there were other people talking and there were some people who loved to talk and loved to grab the microphone, not on the panel, <laughs> but in the audience. So I was like, okay, good. Just let them talk and I can work through my, what I need to work through here. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. it's kind of like, yeah, I'm really aware of where are those moments, what triggers me, mm -hmm. what I need to do for myself. It's just like having my own first aid kit right there yeah it's a very helpful answer and and i suppose the the ultimate realization that you named this earlier you realize over time that no matter how bad it gets you're, you're not dying right it's right. i think that's a really helpful realization no matter how uncomfortable it feels ultimately your nervous system learns i'm going to be safe so i i think yeah. that that's your example is very very helpful as were all the other things that you spoke about mm -hmm. today so 
Thank you. Just a, a couple more questions for you, Matt. Hmm. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Oh, so I have learned the art of enjoying the mundane. I know that for me, life is not about doing, it's about being. So as often as possible, I just try to cultivate presence. And it could be playing with the dogs. Uh, we're babysitting my my in-laws dog. They're on vacation right now. And he has caused me to be very present. Comes up to me and has, you know, needs attention. And so instead of going, oh, you annoying dog, I go, oh, an opportunity to practice presence. Yeah, I can be there. When the weather is nice, I love being outside and just sitting and watching. Well, I'll talk to my clients about that. You know, when there's flowers and butterflies, I'll just go out and watch the butterflies. I have nowhere to be, nothing to do. Uh, I don't feel compelled like I used to. Uh, I used to feel really compelled to be productive at all moments of the day. Mm -hmm. And if I wasn't, then I was a failure. Now I see the joy of just being, just watching, you know, the butterflies being when I take my dog on a walk to just being there. What do the leaves look like? What's the grass like, like right now? Noticing the seasons instead of life just passing by. So I try to just, you know, be, be present. And an emotion that I love is gratitude. Mm. And so I can, a lot of times I'll just put my hand on my heart mm. and just sense into gratitude. I don't even have to be thankful for anything. I just be, what's, what, am, you know, it's, I'm grateful. I'm here. I'm in existence. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, it, one of the questions in the pre-screening that I, that I do is what's a question that you would love to be asked? And based on what you just said, I'll give you two different versions and you could take it whichever way you want. Okay. So the question that you teed up was what are you called to do in life? And I would maybe offer the alternative. Who are you called to be in life? Mm -hmm. yeah, both are good. And both for me dovetail. So my calling, which I didn't discover until midlife was to coach. I made I wouldn't say it's a mistake. It was a learning, learning moments for me where as an entre entrepreneurial minded person, anytime I became passionate about something, I'd try to figure out how to make a business out of it. Mm. Whether that's barbecue, you know, just anything. I'd be like, oh, I really love doing this. I should make a business out of it. <laughs> and then I'd follow these passions, you know, maybe, maybe a passion would last a month, maybe it last nine months. But what I discovered is that is not what I'm supposed to be doing. It's okay to learn about those things and be curious and have them as hobbies. But I believe that each person has something they're called to do in life. And so for me, that was coaching. When I landed on that, what I discovered was it's something I will never be tired of doing. I can, I will never learn everything there is to know. So there's infinite curiosity. I will always be able to learn more. It's something that is a practice. It's not a perfect. I am not a perfect coach. I'm not the best coach. For some people, I am the, the best coach. For others, I'm not the best fit. And so all of those play into a very satisfying life. I don't feel like I work. In many ways, I feel like I'm retired. Because it just, you know, I get 
as much out of the coaching relationship as I feel my clients do. A lot of times when I'm in a call with someone, the words will be coming out of my mouth and I'll simultaneously be thinking, you need to listen to yourself right now, Matt. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the calling piece. Uh, that's, that's really important versus passion and yeah. So. Awesome. Well, uh, before I ask the very final question, where would you invite folks to connect with you? Yeah. So there's my website, which is a little hard to spell, but it's Prairie Sattva, which is P-R-A-I-R-I-E-S-A-T-T-V-A.com. So you can find my website there. I'm really excited right now because I just added two coaches to my practice. Both are credentialed, ICF credentialed coaches went through the same certification program that I did. So just updating my website right now. So maybe I'm not the right fit, but I've got two excellent coaches that uh, you could also take a look at on Instagram. uh, Most of my socials are at Matthew help. So on Twitter, on Instagram, not on Facebook anymore, kind of got to, and then with everything that's going on with Twitter, I don't know if I'll be on Twitter anymore. Uh (laughs) I'll just have to see. So. Well, we'll see. This episode will be released in about two months, but I will, if it's still present, I will link to it in the show notes. I'll certainly link to the website, Instagram, any of your socials that are still present. LinkedIn, you can find me there. Okay. And and the final question that I ask every single guest, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in the words of Matt, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? A meaningful life to me is one where you're living in joy, you're living in gratitude, you're making the impact that you want to make, you're not living up to other people's standards. I mean, I I work with so many people who, you know, they, they want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. And what I say is, You don't necessarily have to make that kind of an impact. You can make a smaller impact and have it feel just as meaningful. So yeah, I I lived much of my life not in joy, not happy, judging myself. And uh, through a lot of work and a lot of practice, I've been able to shed those things and just have been able to be. Beautiful. Well, Matt, we covered all of the ground that I wanted to cover in this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I'll give a little shout out to Ravi, a, a past guest of mine, for the introduction. Yes. And your story is going to, it certainly had an impact on me. It has an impact on me. And I trust that it's going to have an impact for anyone who's tuned in. I, I certainly still can fall into the pattern of thinking that there's different variations that I'm uniquely flawed, that I'm alone, that no one else struggles from the same things that I'm struggling with. And these conversations are so important. They always, they, they wake me up to the fact that we're like what Ram Dass said, we're all walking each other home. And one of the ways that we can walk each other home is by sincerely sharing our stories, even, and especially the parts of ourselves that we might be ashamed of or that we've tried to hide for most of our life and Mm -hmm. 
which we've already named in this conversation, there is such freedom that that comes from really naming your experience and, and being with your experience. And yeah, I, I just admire the commitment that you have to your inner work and to creating the life that you want to have. And that will invite anyone who tunes in to live a little bit more intentionally and with more joy in their life as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be here with you. And I just want to honor your contribution, you facilitating these kinds of discussions uh, and helping them emerge into the world. It's very powerful work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. And to, to all the listeners, whenever you are listening, I hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening. You are not alone. Please speak up if you have anything that you feel is calling to you or eating at you and take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose. Peace.